0: You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. You could, I suppose, see this as a story about the federal government eventually doing the right thing. That would require you, however, to stretch the definition of eventually over at least 15 years, and probably centuries, if we're being honest.
1: Every day for decades, First Nations children, some even newborns, have been ripped from their families and communities. And many denied medical services and other supports when they've needed them.
0: Canada agrees to an unprecedented $40 billion deal to reform the on-reserve child welfare system and compensate those who suffered through it. $40 billion is a lot of money, sure. But there are a lot of victims out there and a lot of work that needs to be done, and a lot of wrongs to right. So why did governments, I say governments because it was more than just the Trudeau Liberals, fight so hard for 15 years to avoid a settlement with First Nations children if they are saying now that it's the right thing to do? Why did they go to court to avoid spending this money, even as they acknowledged publicly that Canada has committed genocide against Indigenous people. What finally forced their hand? And now that there's an agreement in principle, will anyone believe it until the check clears? I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, this is The Big Story. Cindy Blackstock is the Executive Director. Of the First Nations Child and Family Caring Society. She's a professor at McGill University's School of Social Work. And it was Cindy, alongside the Assembly of First Nations, who filed a human rights complaint against Canada in 2007, which eventually led to the agreement we're discussing today. Hello, Cindy. Hello. Could you maybe begin by taking us back to 2007? What led you to file this human rights complaint?
1: It was really a last-ditch effort to try and get Canada to end what really amounts to apartheid public services to First Nations kids and to their families. Ever since Confederation, the federal government has had responsibility for funding public services for First Nations and has done so at far lesser levels than everybody else. But of course, at the same time, the government of Canada was... Uh, foisting onto First Nations the trauma of residential schools. So they had more trauma, but less services to deal with it. And that was resulting, as of 2007, in more First Nations kids being separated from their families and from the height of residential schools. We had worked with Canada for the previous decade documenting these inequalities. And in terms of First Nations child welfare, Canada was giving 70 cents on the dollar compared to other kids. Hmm. And the real deficit was in those supports to keep families together. It acknowledged it. It had recommendations to fix it. It just didn't do it. And that's why we had to file the case.
0: You mentioned that it was a last-ditch effort. Uh, As you filed it, what were your thoughts on the ultimate outcome?
1: The ultimate outcome, actually, I thought would come quickly. I, You know, I, th- I think they thought we were bluffing when we said we'd file this human rights case. And when we did, I thought, well, that'll shock them and show them we're serious and they'll finally do something about this for children. Um, they did do something immediately, and that was to cut all of our funding and then to start this dialogue about well, this is the wrong place to be able to discuss this and resolve this. The tribunal doesn't have any jurisdiction. They went for nine years on these various motions to try and get the case dismissed. But, and eventually they failed. And we actually went to trial in 2013.
0: Before we talk about the trial and, and all these years of fighting for uh, what is hopefully a great outcome, You've said many times uh, about this case that you are fighting it for the children. Yeah. Tell me about the kids that you're fighting for right now.
1: You know, when I think about what the discrimination looks like on the ground, I think about families like Zach Trouts, uh, who was a loving father, along with his wife, of two children who are in palliative care due to a rare condition. And Canada capped the number of catheters and feeding tubes for those children. <sighs> So they would have to make a choice about whether or not you would rewash these things and risk infections to your children, or would you not feed them or toilet them? I think about Jordan River Anderson, a First Nations little boy who, for medical reasons, had to stay in the hospital for the first two years of his life, but should have gone home at the age of two and would have gone home if he was non-Indigenous and then had support services to keep him there. But he was left in the hospital for over two and a half years while Government of Canada and Manitoba argued over who should pay for those at-home services because he's First Nations. And as his sister, Gerlene Anderson, said, dies of a broken heart in that hospital, never spending a day outside of it because of who he was. I think of children and young people like Tina Fontaine, who uh, his family was one of those families with multi-generational trauma that didn't get the help and that she herself ends up in child welfare care. And then sadly is one of the murdered missing indigenous women who's found dead on the side of the Winnipeg river. Mm -hmm. And then even after Canada was found to be responsible for discriminating against these kids in 2016 and ordered to stop, it chose not to. And in 2018, Canada's non-compliance was linked to the deaths of at least three young girls. The community had heard of a suicide pact among the young girls and called Canada and said, you have to implement the order and give us mental health treatment so we we can help these children and help their families. And it sat on someone's desk. And the children die of suicide months later. And when it comes to public attention, the government of Canada said, well, that proposal came at an awkward time.
0: Maybe you can talk a little bit about the 15 years from from the filing of the complaint to now, and and in particular, I guess I'm I'm interested in the transition of federal governments. You know, I can only imagine uh, in this long struggle, mm-hmm. you hope for something to change and and hope for new people to come to power that will take a different tact. And it seems like that might happen, and then and then it just doesn't.
1: Yeah, I think that was one of the major myths of this, is um, that some political parties would somehow see the light. I mean, this is such an obvious wrong, right, is giving children less because of who they are in public services. Mm -hmm. Like, it's just such an obvious wrong. I, I could never wrap my mind around how this is defensible under anybody's political watch, regardless of party. But there are those who believe that some parties are more friendly to First Nations than others. But what I saw in common with all the governments over this long history of the case is an instinct to protect themselves, to portray themselves indeed as the victims, i.e. we're the ones that are being victimized as the government because the tribunal is exceeding its jurisdiction versus thinking about the children that I spoke about. Um, they also would be looking for a lot of thanks for their discrimination. They would, uh, they would acknowledge that, yes, quote, more work needs to be done, uh, but they would often say, well, we've done more than anybody else, right. or we did more than the other party did, or uh, these are good first steps. All of that stuff was a continuing colonial thread throughout all the governments.
0: Why do you think that it took so long and faced such pushback from multiple governments? I mean... To your point, I think it's pretty clear that the wrongdoing is evident, and you know, yes, I guess when you look at this settlement, you could say that it's a lot of money, but you could also look at the amount of money our government spends on everything else and say, like, this is actually not a lot of money compared to all the wrongs that have been done here. So it it just kind of staggers me why it would take us so long to get here when this is probably where we were going to end up anyway.
1: Yeah. And in fact, one of the things, 40 billion is a lot of money. But had they solved this when we first produced that report showing the 70 cents on the dollar, it would have been hundreds of millions of dollars to solve. And it would have, uh, there would have been no compensation paid because there would have been no victims, meaning children's childhoods and indeed their lives could have been saved. This is really a story about how colonialism can infuse a government to blind it from doing the absolute obvious right thing and where the public was really fed a whole pile of propaganda that First Nations were actually getting more than everybody else, not less. And so this whole toxic potion in the way that this issue was cast continued to tranche along and pile up on the hopes and dreams and lies of kids. I think things started to change when... Well, first of all, the survivors told their truce and that opened up some of the Canadian psyche uh, and held governments more accountable. But also in the repeated legal losses, um, you know, you can fake it. You can do a lot of dog whistling as a government um, for a long time, especially if the public's uninformed. But when you bring those dog whistles and they're tested into courts, uh, they really fall away quite quickly. And what we saw in this case is Canada lost over thirty legal rulings at all levels of court, other than the Supreme Court, uh, where we've never been yet. But everyone else, looking at the facts, decided against Canada. That and the children in the unmarked graves, and how that awoke the Canadian consciousness, that created the opportunity for change.
0: It was amazing as I learned more about this case to be frank, uh, uh, probably late at the same time as a lot of Canadians did, to hear it put so starkly as we were were dealing with this, that, you know, the government is taking First Nations kids to court. Yeah. It seems hard to believe that we could have ignored uh, a case like that for so long until um, something really shook us up.
1: Yeah, um, it is hard. And in fact, we even had um, the prime minister as recently as this fall saying that they weren't taking kids to court, and that was completely at odds with the factual record. You could go onto a webcast in federal court and watch the hearing yourself. I think it really speaks to this idea of really denying accountability for the wrongs uh, that are very close to the same kind of wrongs we saw in residential schools, but happening on our watch. We don't want to think that, we well, somehow we want to think we're better than that, that we've evolved from that, that that was all, quote, dark chapter stuff. But the real opportunity of leadership, it seems to me, is to really embrace what hurts on your watch, to really look at the problems in real time and take the steps necessary to address the injustices that are being perpetrated right now.
0: You've been advocating. Uh, for the rights and for equity for First Nations kids for a lot longer than just 2007. Your track record goes back to the 90s. Here you are now. This is, I mean, again, it's it's a horrible situation. So putting a positive spin on it maybe doesn't feel right. But this is a this is a huge win. How does it feel to be on this stage, um, getting these billions of dollars that are so needed?
1: Well, you know, a lot of people have asked me that, and I'm actually not sure I can say how I feel. I, I always measure change at the level of children. So for me, this isn't the time to pat ourselves on the back or, or, or to celebrate, because these are just words on paper. It's a non-binding agreement. And governments have over the years said many nice things. Uh, But they failed to deliver it. And in fact, they've used those nice words to protect themselves, to try to deflate public pressure. So when I'll celebrate is really when I start to see things really change for children and their families. When those support services are there to help them recover from the trauma residential schools. When we start seeing the government seriously tackle instead of making excuses for First Nations children not having clean water to drink. And uh, when we're able to better support the young people who have been in care and those um, who are in care right now uh, so that they can recover a bit of what was lost to them.
0: In a moment, we'll get to the non-binding resolution stuff and uh, waiting essentially for the government's check to clear. But before we talk about that, I'm interested in the practicalities. You know, there's, $20 $20 billion is compensation and there's $20 billion for long-term reform of the on-reserve child welfare system. Where is that money going? What's it going to buy? What are we going to do with it?
1: Well, if you will first talk about the compensation and that's for the families that I was talking about, right? That in some cases lost their children, in some cases uh, lost their childhoods. right? And um, we have actually been working with First Nations Youth in Care themselves to really not be able to inform the rollout of that compensation. And what they've told us is that that money needs to go to things like, for example, they could, for the first time, get an apartment in a safe neighborhood where they don't have to be scared anymore, uh, where they could actually get access to kind of post-secondary kind of education, uh, get cultural supports and all the rest of that. And in that compensation, they also said, look, we need to be careful on how it's rolled out. It needs to have mental health supports and others, because as a result of all this trauma, some people are living in vulnerable conditions. And when you think about $20 billion, it's an astronomical amount of money, but it's only that high because so many people were hurt. When we look at the number of children, for example, who could have had a chance to stay safely in their families, had Canada given equitable support, Between about 2006 and 2019, we're talking about 60,000 kids. Wow. That's more than the population of a good number of Canadian cities. Imagine that number of people being dislocated from their families. So that's on the compensation side. On the go-forward side, it's really about, um, for example, having culturally-based services to deal with the multigenerational trauma. It's about having addiction services because that trauma, because it's not been addressed, has resulted in some families really struggling with addiction. So let's get those services in their treatment options for the community and for the family. Um, and for young people in care, we've actually talked to them and as I've said, and some of the things they've said is we want to have systemic change where uh, young people are supported who have had these experiences. And in some cases, we need services to repeat, for people to teach us what we ought to have learned when we were with our families, hmm. so basics like getting a driver's license, right. you know, learning how to cook, how do you open up a bank account? Those are some of these supports that people need to have in order to kind of live the lives they wish to have. But this discrimination made much harder to get.
0: When you speak about this as a non-binding uh, resolution, it sounds like you're still holding your breath. And if that's the case. When will you be able to exhale? Is there a deadline? Is there a point when this becomes official? (laughs) I'm honestly serious when I say, like, when does the check clear?
1: Yeah, exactly. Well, there's been a lot of NSF checks from the government over the years. I think we'll see the first indication of that April 1st, where they're supposed to roll out these services for these young people in care and those leaving care. So that uh, because before what would happen is when you're 18 and you've gone through the child welfare system, you were literally just dumped out on the streets with no supports. Um, so this will provide, uh, you know, some support for housing, for, for emotional supports, for cultural supports to bridge them into young adulthood. It'll also provide more prevention services to help those families get over the multi generational trauma. That's the first tranche of money that should be in in place on April 1st. And then we need to see something else happen too. And that is that the government needs to be fixed itself. This is a repeat offender when it comes to First Nations kids. First with residential schools, then with the 60s goop, now with the willful and reckless, as the tribunal calls it, discrimination that has led to the deaths of some children and unnecessary family separations of thousands. We can no longer rely on itself to reform itself. We need to have an external ventilation of the government and then have it retooled in ways that hopefully protect another generation of kids being hurt by the government. That is some of the important work that we have ahead.
0: As you've had recent discussions uh, with the government around this agreement, do you and, you know, I'm not asking you to give them credit that they don't deserve or anything like that. Like I'd like an, an honest answer. Do you get the sense that anything has changed? Do they finally get it? Did they? Do you get the sense that, that people in the government of Canada had the same awakening that so many Canadians did uh, around the time that we began discussing the unmarked graves?
1: I think uh, some of them did, and I uh, will go back even further in this case since I've been around in the late, in the 90s, kind of dealing with this issue. There were always people who were much more aware of the circumstances and were fighting for change within the government. The problem is, is that the system itself and the political decision-making really was calibrated towards a perpetuation of injustice. And I don't think that seriously changed. I don't think that they totally appreciate, for example, the harm that the government did. They are finally saying, and this is something that actually was a big encouragement for me to even go into this negotiation space because I'm very skeptical of those spaces. They're often used for delay. Hmm. Uh, But when the government finally this fall acknowledged that the discrimination is ongoing, meaning it's happening on their watch, I thought that was finally a breath of fresh air. That's the kind of honesty we need to see because you can't change what you don't acknowledge. And up until then, they were in denial phase 100%. But I don't think they fully appreciate what was done. And I don't think they fully appreciate how colonial the department is and how colonial the government remains.
0: What needs to happen between now and April 1st to make sure the money comes through, to make sure, you know, you mentioned at the beginning they would often promise things and then hope that, you know, it would fall out of the news cycle. How do we make sure that this happens?
1: Well, I think that the encouraging part of this story is that I think we got to this place because the public did not look away. We've seen public compassion from Canadians when the headlines come up on, for example, murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. But then the news cycle dies and Canada continues the injustices. What we we need to do now is they had their press conference. Uh, We need to be clear with Canadians that nothing has changed for children. Keep watching the government. Keep the government accountable until it ends its discrimination. Not only in this case, but more broad sweeping in terms of ending the inequalities in water and other areas too. That is really essential.
0: The last thing I want to ask, especially because you uh, spoke so passionately about the people that you've been fighting for in the past, is... What do you want this generation of First Nations children and the next one and the next one after that Mm. to know about their future in Canada? I guess for better or for worse, with or without this agreement.
1: You know, um, one of the children that we were working with that was standing up for justice said to me that discrimination is when the government doesn't think you're worth the money. And ever since Confederation, the federal government has acted as if First Nations children weren't worth the money. I want a generation of First Nations kids to grow up knowing that they don't have to spend their childhoods fighting for the basic uh, services that everyone else takes for granted. I want them to not just dream about getting clean water, but to dream about their the contribution that they can make in their communities. To walk with their heads held high, to be proud of who they are, and to know that You know, it wasn't just multi-generational trauma that was passed down to them. They've been gifted with something far more powerful, and that's a multi-generational strength of their communities. And that's a gift for them, and it's a gift to the world. That's what I want to see.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. And uh, please keep in touch over the next few months. And if it feels like they're trying to back out of it, sound the alarm so we can all scream about it.
1: Oh, I will be here. Um, You know, uh, one time I wrote 10 years ago, I said I felt I was screaming into silence. I I no longer feel that way. I feel that there's somebody listening to the children and that the First Nations kids have an opportunity now to never be alone again. Uh, But let's keep watching. Let's remain curious. Keep asking questions.
0: Cindy, thanks again.
1: Thank you very much for having me.
0: Cindy Blackstock, one of the reasons the Canadian government is finally, reluctantly, stepping up. That was The Big Story. For more from us, head to TheBigStoryPodcast.ca. Find us on Twitter at TheBigStoryFPN. Talk to us anytime via email, TheBigStoryPodcast, all one word, at rci.rogers.com. You can get us in any podcast player you like, Apple or Google or Stitcher or Spotify, I will remind you... Most of you have already reviewed us on Apple, but if you happen to use Spotify, you can do it there too, and we will very much appreciate it. Thanks for listening. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings. We'll talk tomorrow.